The Arts of the San Joaquin Valley is a program that focuses on the arts community from Stockton to Merced and Foothill to Foothill. We talk with local authors, poets, playwrights, fine artists, actors, directors, filmmakers, dancers, musicians, crafters, and makers to learn more about their art and the arts-related events here in our part of the valley. We're your hosts, Linda Scheller. And I'm Sandy Graham. If you're involved in the greater arts community of our area and would like to be featured, we will share our contact information at the end of the show. Today our guest is Indigo Moore, Poet Laureate Emeritus of Sacramento, Indigo Moore's fourth book of poetry, Everybody's Jones in for Something, took second place in the University of Nebraska Press Backwater Prize and will be published spring 2021. His second book, Through the Stonecutter's Window, won Northwestern University Press's Cave Canem Prize. His first and third books, Taproot and In the Room of Thirsts and Hungers, were both part of Main Street Rag's Editor's Select Poetry Series. In addition to poetry, Indigo has produced award-winning plays, short fiction, and essays. His stage-turned-screenplay, Live at the Excelsior, was optioned as a full-length film. He is a former teacher at the Stone Coast MFA program and a Cave Canem Fellow. Indigo sits on the advisory board for the Modesto Stanislaus Poetry Center and continues to teach and present throughout Stanislaus County. A tenure veteran of the U.S. Navy and a twice-decorated Gulf War veteran, Indigo divides his time between writing, teaching, and integrated circuit layout engineering for computer companies. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us, Indigo. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Linda. Could you tell us some of the places in Stanislaus County where you've appeared? <laughs> Stanislaus County, of course, because my house is in Sacramento, is just south of me. And I've been invited to a few places down there. And the first thing that goes through my mind is that, you know, it, it seems a long way, a long way off, and possibly because of the farming country between uh, Sacramento and Stanislaus County. But I've been in University of Pacific, uh, San Joaquin, Delta College, uh, CSU Stanislaus, uh, the Barking Dog, as you well know, uh, down for most. Uh, I've taught a couple of uh, workshops there that have gone extremely well, and it's your neighbor, so it's fun to come down and do things. Well, I'm glad you do. Please tell us about your forthcoming book, Everybody's Jonesing for Something. You're a writer as well, so you know that often we start working on something, and we may have some idea where it's going, but it's only after we get things together, at least in my experience, that I get a sense of what it is. And I'm going to read what comes from University of Nebraska Press because I think it defines it more succinctly than I could in, in a short time. The collection is a headfirst plunge into national and personal laments and desires from Emmett Till to the fall of the towers, to the paradise fires, more weaves a thread through the hopes, cravings, 
passions, sacrifices, and Sisyphean yearnings that make this country the beautiful trap that it is. And I think that does a pretty good job of describing it because the book looks into yearnings that we would agree with and some that we would not, some that we would lament and some that we would despise. And it wasn't an attempt to try to look through one lens. I was looking at everyone. Why are we in such a mess? I know at one point you had incorporated graphics in everybody's Jones and for something. <laughs> I want, if you would, please, for you to describe what was your impetus initially? What kind of process did you use selecting, inserting them? And then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> you saw the expanded version. And, and I'm always a person who's, who's pushing boundaries or trying to do something different. And I was, had seen a lot of other journals, or not a lot, a few, that have been incorporating images and it, it doesn't change the manuscript as much as expound on an idea. Mm-hmm. And from my description of Jones and before, I was looking back through histories, most the history of the United States, and I was seeing, especially in the early parts of uh, the last century, how many of the headlines that were in newspapers were mirroring a lot of what I was doing now in this in this book. And that's sort of a holdover from In the Room of Thirst and Hungers, where I was marrying two different uh, time periods. So I, of course, chose, I think it was before 1927, I was taking headlines from newspapers and inserting them at different points around poems and even advertising. And I thought it worked. I loved it. But I did too. Just, well, thank you. <laughs> but just because I loved it doesn't mean everyone loved it. And it's taking a chance. Graphics are not, are not something that's easy to deal with. It's a lot more expense. And in the end, I ended up taking them out and submitting the manuscript to different places. It was fun It was because I was trying not to necessarily bring headlines from newspapers that would exactly mirror what was going on in a poem. I wanted it to give an extra, an extra level to it. And I was often putting them in strange places, and dividing up the poems for, I had a lot of fun with it. But, you know, sometimes the fun has to end and it's time to get the book published. <laughs> Would you please read us a selected poem? Absolutely. I'm working with, uh, oh my gosh, the, a wonderful copy editor, Elizabeth Zaleski. So we're actually in the process of preparing the manuscript for its final uh, birth into this world. Uh, and I want to read one poem entitled Creole Rumspringer. And it speaks to, do you know what a Brumspringer is, by chance? I'm sure you do, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's from the Amish tradition where the children get a chance to spend time out in the real world. And of course, it varies depending on what place you're coming from. But they get a certain amount of time to discover if the lifestyle that they could be chosen to live is right for them or not. 
and this involves a time when someone else that I knew <laughs> was looking at me in that vein. Would I be the type of lifestyle that they would want? And we were very young, so Creole Rum Springer. I never thanked you for your black heart, for bucking your paper bag friends, for bumping thighs to Sugar Hill. The funk I gave and you took for the two by two of four by fours. Forgive my blackness stain on your high yellow dinner table. Thank you, slipping me the right fork for the salad. When the crow swooped, your daddy drew a lead hole through its heart, then looked at me like a wish he forgot to make. Remember that? Your hallway to five bedrooms for three people, damn, that's still dizzying. A solid oak room waiting to be filled. A vacuum for unwritten laughter. Sorry, I wore tattered dress Converse shoes to your party. Your mother's unbroken rhythm of tisks and condescension still rankles my ass. When your uncle asked me where my father went to school, my teeth ground on spun glass. Incognito, I get that joke now. You called me invisible man and I thought Claude Rains. I never dreamed you'd want to slap the country grin out of my mouth, strain out my black and ugly. Ooh, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. It's hard. Could you expound on the themes that you are exploring in the book? We've known each other for a while, and I know you know this, but I don't think people realize that I am indeed an angry Black man. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a somewhat poor section, and as I got older, I met people who struggled and had spent their lives struggling with race relations, and they knew so much that I didn't know. And I feel I've been late coming to the game, probably in my early 40s, did I really get an understanding of how this country was working and how all of it affected me. Um, but I'd spent so much time in different places. I was in a talent development class, and I knew a lot of white people and they, many of them are friends of mine, but I can't say they were less ignorant than I was, but I gained just a wide swath of understandings. And so the themes that I'm looking at in this book is basically that I'm defined by many things. I am completely African-American, but I see the problems in many different ways. And I looked at this book as my opportunity to explain what's in my head, what's going on with me. I'm looking at people, I'm looking at a shooter, a potential shooter in a massacre. I look at people who are lost in their own skin, lost in the places they are. I look at a mother who's been convinced 
to buy a new washing machine because she's seen so many advertisements. The theme is, do we notice that everybody really is jonesing for something, wanting something that maybe they don't need, haven't been convinced that they want something that they don't even understand, believing that a past incarnation of themselves or an incarnation of their families is something that they need to be striving for. And in many cases, it's because they've been convinced that it's something that they need to be striving for. You're listening to Arts of the San Joaquin Valley with your host, Linda Scheller, and today's guest, Indigo Moore. Indigo, what are some of the creative challenges you've faced? Well, the one, probably one of the biggest ones is I work full time at a job, and it's a job that's not artistic in any way. And when I'm in when I'm in the mode of writing, I'm writing. When I was working on In the Room of Thirst and Hungers and working at Intel and Folsom, I was on sabbatical because Intel is one of those few places that's actually a corporate entity that allows sabbaticals. And when I took that sabbatical, I was coming near the end of the book, uh, In the Room of Thirst and Hungers, and I had two months to write it or to rewrite it basically. And we could talk about that in a bit, but basically I was getting up in the morning, going to this local coffee shop and writing. And I got into such a groove that at one point I was writing two or three poems a day. When it comes to artistic or literary uh, roadblocks for me, I don't think I have any. I'm always, I've always got three, four, five or more projects lined up. And once I'm working on them, I can do it. I think it's the problem that many people have in different ways, how to get your head into that space. Do you think being an integrated circuit layout engineer has given you any skills or access to writing that you might not otherwise have had? Uh, no, I think it's the other way around. I'm often asked if I ever write about uh, integrated circuit engineering or mask design, which is what I do, but I don't, I don't think it works that way. I think the person who I am allows me to be a writer and a mask designer. I think that most engineers of just about all capacities have some level of autism in them. The ability to just concentrate on minute details for such long periods of time. And I think both, I think that's a particular skill set that works both for mask design layouts and for writing. Ah, thank you. Would you please read us another poem? Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm looking through the manuscript because I knew that you'd want this. And it's interesting to me because I'm looking at the things that Elizabeth is suggesting and, and she's brilliant, but in my mind, I'm working through. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's impossible not to go back to the beginning of the poem. Like, okay, was this even me? Or does it say what I intended it to? One of the poems, the latest poem, last poems I put in is, this one is called The Fortress of First and Last Thoughts. And it 
comes from a conversation I was having with a friend who said that she would never want to be in a relationship with a writer because because of a she didn't say they were self-absorbed, but she was not not saying that they were self-absorbed. <laughs> and, and and I get that. I mean, she was saying she was saying a lot of things, but you know, I wasn't listening that closely, so it's hard to remember exactly what. But it spawned this poem, The Fortress, The First and Last Thoughts. I'm reading Kaminsky, deaf to the war of clinking glasses and forks, when she slides into her chair, trailing grace like a vapor trail, her fingernails the color of smoldering ashes. She taps the table's edge, a writer's gong to begin her litany. What she says, her new manuscript languished beside the cat food on her kitchen counter, simultaneously undone and somehow sadly finished. She saw Harriet Tubman in a theater with no color but her own. She lost her husband last week and was considering taking out a restraining order. He simply would not leave her thoughts, her heart, her moments. The roasted peppers sprinkled with Himalayan salt were new and simply divine. The waiter arrives and suggests to Sauvignon Blanc, neither of us has a story about. Intolerable for a writer such as I am. What I say. My last manuscript took second place in a major contest and will arrive before spring break, ice break, ices in the next year. Three old shirts of mine are resurrected by circular styling. A stroke days before Christmas almost stole half my body, my senses, my speech. For a day I was a clip pulled half into sea by a storm. The latest additions to my memoir make me wonder if I know myself, if I already despaired duplicating this divine pepper recipe at home. The meal ends with a grapefruit salad and a kiss that tastes vaguely of stale air. Later, the phone wakes me from a quasi-slumber dream of moonlight pounding a Moroccan beach. She wants to know what I said earlier that reminded her of the Italian roadster her husband flew off a cliff in Big Sur, pistons flailing like broken wings. But the only memory I have of dinner is of a ghost frantically dialing a number no one answers. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, where can our listeners find information about the book's launch and then your upcoming readings? Well, we're still early in the process. We're coming up with the uh, the final manuscript. I'm like every like every writer who's worked with a large press, waiting to see what the cover is going to look like. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and the University of Nebraska Press is wonderful. They give so many opportunities to give input, but in the end, it's it's mostly their decision. I had the opportunity to to give many. Uh, facets of what I hope the cover would look like and they even had me send in a couple of images of what I would like for it to look like and there's actually one that I'm sincerely hoping that it will be but I have <laughs> I, I'm sure I get a veto but and I'm not a difficult person so if they choose something that's beautiful I'm going to accept it but I'm just waiting and hoping to see uh, this book doesn't come out until March 
of next year. So besides this, I'm working on other things and learned long ago not to think about it too much. So in 2017, Main Street Rag published In the Room of Thirsts and Hungers, subtitled The Mirrored Tragedies of Paul Robeson and Othello. Could you please tell us about the book? Yes, it's, it's a book that took about seven years to write. And long before I knew I was writing the book, I was becoming the person who wanted and needed to write this book. Uh, it's, it's the Mirror Tragedies of Paul Ropes and, and Othello is exactly what it sounds like. They were two men, of course, one of them fictional, who led very similar lives. Paul Robeson is often given credit, and I think rightly so, for having the definitive betrayal of Othello. And I believe that's because he basically was Othello. Mm -hmm. If Paul Robeson had been a fictional character and Othello were a real person, he would have been the perfect person to play Paul Robeson. And much of what I saw in their lives is two men who succeeded in a society that did not want them to succeed, or once they succeeded, would claim that they were succeeding for the society and not for themselves. And I believe that it's, by no means do I consider myself on, on that level, but I think the struggles that they went through are something that helped me become the person that I am. From what sources did you derive ideas and information for the book? Since the book wasn't, it's primarily about Paul Robeson and Othello. I'm looking at them as if they were cousins across their time periods. But it deals as much with the people in their lives as the, as the two men themselves. So I heard a lot. I started with uh, Martin Duberman's uh, biography on Paul Robeson. And I branched out from there, uh, read a lot of Othello, had to invent some of Othello's background. And the reason, you know, we can discuss that if you like, but I had to mirror their lives and show exactly what they were going through, but not paint them as if they were in a vacuum. They weren't. A lot of what they did was dictated by the societies and the different things that they went through. So I had to go over different people in their lives. Iago makes an appearance. McCarthy makes an appearance. Uh, Desdemona, everyone that could possibly, from my viewpoint, show who they were, or show who these two individuals were, were important to this book and ended up writing poems about these people from their viewpoints about what they went through. It isn't necessarily, it's, I would say it's not necessarily uh, predicated on how these two men were going as much as the ocean of their lives and how everything ebbed and flowed. What are broken sonnets and why did you choose to exclusively use the form? When I first wrote the poems. I'm a, I'm a huge uh, Annie French fan. And, and when I went to my master's program, the first class that I took was hers. And she just went back over forms with us. And I was in love with Shakespearean sonnets. And when I first wrote this book, 
I wrote them all in Shakespearean sonnets, but it had two problems. One, I was writing, I was writing in a language, and I mean the form, in a language that seemed to lean the poems in the direction of control. And each of the people I was writing about was broken in some way. And it just didn't work. The poems were stale. It didn't get to the flavor, the indecision, the anger of each person. And so I decided to invent a form. And it was very easy to invent. I just broke the sonnet. I took away the rhymes. I made four quatrains and added a couplet that made sure in the couplet that I undid anything that seemed to lean toward a conclusion in the poems. These people were broken. To say that there was something that I understood that was right about them, that this was all you needed to know, just seemed blasphemy. So I made them all broken sonnets. They were broken people. This is Art to the San Joaquin Valley, and today's guest is Indigo Moore. Indigo, would you please read us another poem? Yes. Uh, would you like something from In the Room of Thirst and Hungers? I would love that. Okay. One of the biggest problems with writing this book is that I read so much and had so much history on individuals that, especially in the Shakespearean sonnet form, the books seemed like a history lesson, and the poems did. And I had to remember that no matter what I knew about the people, a poem is about an emotional event. It's about something that happened. So I'd have to decide on what moment in their lives I was going to write about and then let everything I knew about them become the flavor of the poem. The first poem in the book is entitled A Bullfight, A Revolution, and A Langston. And it's centered on the moment where Langston Hughes, and it, it's known that they were friends in 1927. They were both correspondents to American newspapers for the Spanish Civil War. And it's known that they were friends, and it's assumed that they went to bullfights together because they both loved bullfights. A bullfight, a revolution, and a Langston. Fondling a gin flask, Hemingway quips, we should live in the ring, not die on our butts in the stands. The matador executes Veronica, wiping the brow of a two-ton Christ. Today, there are no nationalists, no loyalists, only Spaniards. Ernest believes the Negro will have his day, that all locked doors shatter their frames when kicked open. Three barbed flags dive like swimmers into the bull. All poetry should be that direct, merciless to marrow. Tercia de Murita, the beast sways a cattail and a zephyr. I wonder if he can taste his ancestor's screams in the air. We could hollow his horns and trumpet two civil wars, America to Spain, his sacrifice uniting our struggles. There's a devil in the matador's patience, sword and muleta, the cape red not for the bull, but to hide the blood. 
Every revolution needs a martyr. Mules pull the carcass around the ring like Hector's at Troy. Ernest says Muleta and Malata were meant to sound alike. They both carry a man's hard choices locked in skin. Thank you. In the author's note for this book, you, you write about your, quote, transition from African-American to Moor. Could you please elaborate? <laughs> yes. Everyone who, uh, anyone who knows about the Moors, one of the things you hear about if you study anything about them is their attention to improving who they were, to bringing sciences and literature even religion to different places. And that's who I wanted to be. I was at a time in my life where figuring out what I was going to be for this second half or early autumn of my life was important. And reading about Robeson, reading about Othello, I realized that this was it. This is who I wanted to be. So I was transitioning from someone who had been like a pebble, a small pebble, in a frantic stream in this country, and someone who wanted to stand a particular ground and be someone to find out that, that direction I wanted to go in. So it was an incredible time for me. It was a tumultuous time for me, but it was a time that needed to come. And when it came, I saw it, and. Here I am. You're listening to The Voice of the Valley, KCBP Wesley, 95.5 FM, and streaming at kcbpradio.org. Stay tuned for the second half of Arts of the San Joaquin Valley with your host, Linda Scheller, and today's guest, Indigo Moore, award-winning poet, playwright, educator, and Poet Laureate Emeritus of Sacramento. Also in the notes you write, quote, I was as perplexed as I was amazed by the complexity of Robeson's life, his immense talent, the barely tempered storms that lay inches beneath his oratory brilliance. Strangely, I felt I knew him from long ago, unquote. As you read and learned more about this phenomenally accomplished man, how did your understanding of him change? I think my understanding of him, I don't know if it's correct to say it changed. I think it was there all along, but I didn't understand it. Growing up in a country where Paul Robeson was basically considered a traitor and that's what you're taught in school often enough you don't get a chance to see him i didn't get a chance to see the struggles that he went through and the conquests and the foul way that he was treated by our government what was done to him was horrendous and yet he persevered and discovering that he was a man fighting for everything that he wanted to be and everything that he wanted, not just African-Americans, but people across the world to be. It meant that anyone could do this if they took the chance to look and see who we are 
and decide upon a direction and just go in that direction. How did your regard for Othello change over time? Well, in high school, frankly, we were taught that he was doing the things he was doing because he wanted to satisfy the white culture, the Venetians, that he was a Venetian himself, and none of that was true. If you look strictly from a viewpoint of white America, then yes, it would absolutely seem that that was why he was doing what he did. But if you look at it from another culture, it doesn't work, it doesn't work that way. Even if you look at what we know about Venetian culture at that time, he was not Venetian. And he, Shakespeare didn't need to say this because it was well known. If you were a Venetian at that time, you could not take part in the war, not a Venetian male. The reason being is because it wasn't like countries are today where there are millions upon millions of men. They didn't want Venetians dying in wars. So often city-states would have, not often, primarily, they would only allow someone foreign-born to be like a general or to be high in the uh, be high in a military service. He wasn't Venetian. He wasn't trying to be who they were. Everything that he was doing makes sense if you say this man was doing what he felt was right, right or wrong. He was doing what he felt like was the correct path for him. And looking at uh, Negroes, African-Americans, Africans at that time, if you are African, this makes sense. If you're a woman, this makes sense. It makes sense because you decide your path and then others decide, well, this is why they did it, only from their own vein, not from yours. Looking at it from that way, I understood why Robeson said this was a character that demanded great respect and was not as people tried to paint him. In what ways were the time periods in which Othello and Robeson lived, 400 years apart, eerily similar? Well, at that time, if you look at what Venetians were doing, they were fighting against the Turks, and they were basically fighting against the Moors. If you look at, uh, of course, where Robeson was going through, he was going through the McCarthy era. Both eras showed Africans or people related to Africans as being the other, as being someone that you could look at, but you couldn't show any particular adherence to. They were both going through incredibly difficult times. They were both going through times where just because of the color of their skin, they were persecuted, killed, and completely disregarded. Both of them had to hold themselves to who they were while they were struggling through this. So yeah, just looking at their particular, their particular consequences, it was easy to paint them as related to each other, as people who would give, give each other solace if the other person would listen. This is Arts of the San Joaquin Valley with your host, Linda Scheller. Today I'm speaking with Indigo Moore. In 2009, your manuscript Through the Stonecutter's Window won the Cave Canem Northwestern University Press Poetry Prize. The book is described as, 
quote, a sustained and impressive dialogue with the visual arts, history, the natural world, and the poet's dreams and nightmares. Always in motion, Moore's lines are choreographed to make sense of all that is most elusive in meaning, music, violence, love, anger, and desire. I see these threads again and again in your different books, and I, I especially wondered about history. When did you start developing an interest in history? I honestly have no idea. I think <laughs> that I can't say that I necessarily have an interest in history as much as I have an interest in anything that I don't understand. Huh. Much of what I learned is driven by the fear that I don't understand it. I want to know more. I want to know why these two pieces connect, or I want to see what possible connections they can have. And often enough, uh, that occurs through looking at history. Well, especially right now, a lot of people here in America are clamoring for history to be taught differently. And as a retired educator, that concerns me personally. Do you have any ideas about better ways we might teach history <laughs> so that we can better understand its importance and its relevance here in America? I would not be the person to ask about such a thing. I have a good friend who, uh, Ava Gilwa, she wrote uh, an incredible book entitled uh, Monarch, Myth, and Material Culture in Germany, 1750 to 1950, which sounds like it would be the tiresome type of history that we normally hear. But she professes to be a uh, lover of pop culture, and she writes about it that way. So she does all this research, and then she looks at different things that have happened then that really show who the culture, show who and what the culture is and who the people were delving into this culture. It's almost like Hamilton. Not that I'm saying that Hamilton is historically accurate, but it makes us see the people as real and we get a chance to see why they did things. I have no idea how we could possibly incorporate this into, into modern day culture, but unless we bridge that gap where we stop seeing history is still, I think it's going to be a difficult, a difficult, uh, a difficult gap to cross. In high school, I had a uh, an algebra teacher who was a mathematician, which was great. Except I, I got that he knew so much about it that to him it was like a famous uh, hitter trying to teach hitting to other to uh, other students or other baseball players without really understanding that everyone doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. I think having someone who hasn't made history their, their uh, who hasn't made history their holy grail would be a better way to do it because maybe they would understand that, okay, we're all not going to get it unless you bring it to our level. But again, that may not work. So I don't know if I'm the person 
to say how it's going to change, but I think you're right. I think it needs to change. Could you repeat the name of the author? I'm going to spell her name. It's E V A, and I said Eva, and it's Ava because she's German. E V A G I L O I, and I believe the last name is the French pronunciation. I have no idea how that works but she teaches at Rutgers and also does a lot of work at Princeton. Well I'm going to order that book that sounds like something I want to read for sure. <laughs> Many of your poems invoke and respond to music in one book just just the one we were speaking of through the stonecutter's window you reference blues jazz hymns and opera and I may have missed a few. Please talk about music in your life and art. For African-Americans, of course, one of the few things we were allowed to have was music when we came here, but not even the instruments that we were used to. I think music is one of those things that, that becomes a huge part of everyone's life. We can look back at at uh, music that was happening during our formative years, and we remember it, and it brings back those times to us. It always is something that's either helping to shape you or something that you are shaping into your own existence. I like writing about music just because I like writing about anything that informed me in some way. And I grew up listening to a lot of music, uh, different genres. I would sit in the room with a small radio. And back, of course, then you had cassette tapes. And I would put the cassette tape in, put it on record. And I'd be listening to the radio while I was doing other things. And I'd have it paused. So the minute I unpaused it, it would start recording. And that was my way of getting songs on a cassette player that I liked. But these were times that meant a lot to me. And I don't separate those times from the music that was inhabiting those moments. So yeah, they work a lot into my poetry and into my fiction because they were a huge part of who I was and it's hard to draw the flavor of those times without including the music. Quite a few of your poems also reflect upon visual art. When you do encounter a work of art that moves you, how is your desire to respond to it made manifest to you? When I'm looking at artwork, and of course, I know you understand the term ekphrasis. It's a Greek word, and it basically means into. It was originally designed to discuss any art form being translated into another art form. But as Americans and possibly beyond, we look at it and think it's poetry written about art. And I write more than enough of it. Uh, I started off before I was writing, I was an artist, not a very good one, but I did a lot of it. And I'm used to thinking that way about why this image is there, why this line is there. And the way that I look at art when I'm getting ready to write about it is I extrapolate. It isn't just what I see on the paper. It's, okay, who painted this? When did they paint it? What were they going through when they painted? What's painted? What's on the 
outside of the canvas. What are the characters or the images in the, in the canvas doing? Why are they there? And what is the relationship to the artist? What is the, my relationship to the painting? When did I see it? What was I going through? To me, that's all the experience of the moment of the painting. And it all goes into my artwork or goes into my poetry. This is KCBP Community Radio, and you're listening to Arts of the San Joaquin Valley with our guest, Indigo Moore. Your debut poetry collection, Taproot, was published in 2006. Jane Hirschfield wrote, Indigo Moore's first book engages not only family and personal history, but the broader culture as well. In what ways has growing up in the South contributed to your character and your writing? It would be impossible not to. I grew up in a Bible Belt, and it's who I was. It's who I continue to be in many ways. I don't consider myself a Christian at this point, but that doesn't mean many of the uh, values of Christianity and my knowledge of the Bible and and my dogged, uh, dogmatic uh, return to it for certain images. It's it's ingrained in me. Hmm. And I think in those terms, I think of the trees of the South, I think of the landscape, I think of the red dirt, and I always return to it, even if I'm not physically returning to it. It's a part of who I am. You're a playwright as well as a poet. Which of your plays would you most like to see staged now, either as a debut or in reprise? And please tell us the particulars that you'd wish for. Live at the Excelsior, there's no doubt about it. It was a finalist for the Images Playwright Award and it's the one that's been translated to a screenplay and it's been optioned. And for those of you know, who don't know what that means, option just means that someone has purchased the option of actually producing the film. That doesn't mean it will ever happen, but I would love for it to still reach stage as a stage play. Mm. I, I think it says so much about family and the difficulties of family. And, and, and I won't say that much of my family history came into it because I, th I think very little of it does, but it's based on a, a real historic, uh, place in Charlotte, North Carolina called the Excelsior Theater. And my Uncle Walter once took me into this place because apparently he was working there. And this was during the daytime, so there was no one there. Uh, he sat me at the counter at the bar, which I'm sure violated quite a few laws. And he went in the back to talk to someone, and I believe they were talking about money, but I'm sitting in this bar that smells faintly a beer and there's no one there. And I could feel that there was supposed to be people there. I could feel their energy and there was a sadness to no one being in there. Like it had forgotten how to be a bar and wouldn't remember how to be a bar until people filled it up again. And it was years later, when I was in the Navy, as a matter of fact, that Sheryl Crow's song, uh, We Do What We Can. And it was about the time and death 
of a particular, uh, I want to say saxophone player, but it's been a while since I heard the song. But it was that time later when it came to me that this is what this was about. This was about that moment when I was in the Excelsior, that was it. That the lead uh, musician for the Excelsior had died. And that everyone was now trying to figure out what was going to happen to the family and the bar, because as long as that musician had been there, it was so easy to ignore everything else. And the play, the play came from those two moments. And for me, that tied two times of my life together in a way that, that I'll always think of that play. You know, I've written shorter plays that have actually at least reached stage, but now that's the one. That's the one I would love to see on stage. Mm -hmm. I would too. As a playwright, what do you consider the ideal transition from script to performance? Get the hell out of the way and oh. let the director do their business. <laughs> I've been I've been fortunate that because I've I've studied playwriting and when I was at the University of Southern Maine, the Stone Coast MFA program, what I wanted to know was what's the difference between poetry and fiction and memoir and stage writing and screenwriting. And I get it. I get it, the differences in them. So I don't, when I'm talking to someone who wants to put on a play, I'm saying the right things to get them to understand that I understand this is a collaborative effort and I am interested in seeing what they come up with. I'm not there to do anything that gets in the way of it. If they need have questions of me, then that's fine. But that's not the same thing as me saying, no, 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 that's not what I meant. What I meant is in the script that I'm interested in their direction. And if you're writing a play and you don't get that, they're going to know. <laughs> and the last thing you will ever be is in the room when they're rehearsing and putting it on stage. What are some of the books that have affected you most deeply? Oh, wow. I, I read a lot. So right now I'd have to speak of of what's the, the latest books I've read. Uh, Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead is something that's still resonating with me. Uh, Tommy Pico's Feed. And I'm so interested in him because, not only because of the way he writes, but how he presents his work. Sometimes, I mean, I heard him read at the Kelly Writer's house and, and for a while I couldn't tell when he was in the poem and out of the poem. And if you had told me that someone could do that and it would be an effective reading, I would have said, no way, that's just not going to happen, but it works. Uh, Lauren Kay, Elaine, Honeyfish, um, Joan Barano's In the Next Life, I just continue to read. And, if I've left somebody off, uh, Jericho Brown's book. But again, I read that like two weeks ago. So now it's it's not affecting me as it was then, even though it's fabulous. I just keep reading. Whatever affects me is what I'm reading now. What are you working on currently, writing that is? <laughs> I'm working on a letter to Sacramento um, from a man who 
lives in Sacramento, but isn't there now, and who's gone through the protests now, and it's a letter of solace. Oh. I'm working on, I'm in a fiction, I'm in, I'm in a writing group, uh, a novel writing group run by Erica Melman, and to me, you should always be in a place where you can learn. And we haven't had our first meeting where they've looked at my work, but I'm working on a memoir, an episodic memoir and an episodic novel. I'm working on a lot of things. They all just bunch up, try to get through the door at the same time. And whoever squeezes out is what I'm working on. So those are the two things I'm working on, the three things I'm working on. Could you define you know, I'm sorry. Could you define it? Episodic novel is just a a group of prose writings that come to be a novel. They aren't just standalone things. They're all leading up to something. There's an overall arc for it. They aren't just a collection of short stories. Where can our listeners obtain your books? Um, <laughs> is it okay to say Amazon? <laughs> Main Street Rag, if you're looking for my first and third book. My second book, Northwestern University. And you'll have to wait on my latest book. It's, yeah, we're figuring it out now. <laughs> but it'll be University of Nebraska Press. And could you tell our listeners um, your website and where they can follow you or find you on social media? I I found that even when I'm not actively trying to be a member of social media, I end up on social media. And it's not a bad thing, and I'm certainly not complaining. But you can just find me at Indigo Moore. I have a name that, for the most part, is unique. As long as you remember there's no E at the end of Moore, I'm pretty easy to find. And your website? Indigomore.org. If we have time, and I hope we do, could you read one more poem, please? Absolutely. We were discussing uh, ekphrastic work. And so I'm going to read a poem from Through the Stonecutter's Window. And it's written about uh, Monet, but written about a painting of Monet by uh, Katie Kalk. And she chose to paint Monet later on in life, sitting in a wheelchair, Uh, not a wheelchair, but a rocker. And he was obviously older. And when you get a chance to look at a painting and it's saying something else to you and that extrapolation process comes to mind, I think it's something that you take the challenge of writing. Veiled Vision, Acrylic by Katie Kalk. Anchored as his tired bones insisted to the chair, sunken into a cashmere coat with thick raised collar. You had no choice but to swirl his weight onto the wicker armrest. You give us Monet, subtracted by everything he no longer is. Cataracts stacking behind shades, shrunken skull plastered beneath the brim of a gaudy sun hat. No wonder he succumbed to this pose. Camille, Alice, and Jean are all dead, fading as his days in his eyesight. Gently he rocks, the cottage before him, the bridge after, off the focus of the canvas. I can almost see you, 
empirically calling brilliant strokes and heroic light to take arms against the dying of clawed seasons, yet not even your signature, resembling a Roman numeral nine, can resurrect feline lightness back into his body. Of the futility he must sense in you, the bemused tilt of his head says all we need to know. Beneath the light-soaked beard, our lips pressed to keep the secret you are desperate to protect us from. A day will come for each of us when we are nothing more than still life in someone else's eyes. Beautiful. Thank you. And thank you so much for talking with us today. I've enjoyed this just immensely. Thank you for inviting me. This was wonderful. The Arts of the San Joaquin Valley has been produced and hosted by Linda Scheller and Sandy Graham and features music by Kilobot, Waves of Wonder from the album Jazzy Lazy. You can learn more about their music at www.kilobot.de. That's K-I-E-L-O-B-O-T dot D-E. If you would like us to feature your art-related event, or if you would like to be featured on our show, contact us at arts at kcbpradio.org. Stay tuned for more great community radio brought to you by local volunteers, the Modesto Peace Life Center, and listeners like you. Please visit kcbpradio.org to show your support and to learn more about your community radio station. Catch you next time on the Arts of the San Joaquin Valley.